Leesburg, of course, is just one of many American towns trying to figure out how to navigate the holiday season without endorsing any one religion. And these controversies extend well beyond the annual crash versus menorah debate. In recent years, the Supreme Court has heard several cases dealing with the government's role in religion, from prayer at local government meetings to health care mandates for religiously owned corporations. So today on the show, the long, uneasy history of church and state in America. The First Amendment says that Congress can neither establish a state religion nor prohibit Americans from practicing their own religions. But how have these meanings changed over the centuries, and what counts as a religion? And what happens when your religion prevents you from fighting for your country? Ed, Peter, listening to that piece on Leesburg, one has to wonder, what did the founders have in mind for the relationship between church and state at the very beginning of our nation? And yes, Peter, I am looking at you. Well, Brian, that Leesburg story had a comic dimension. Maybe your feelings were hurt. I don't know. I did not kill Santa Claus. I just want you to know that, Peter. (laughs) If you go back to the early period, there's uh, nothing amusing. It's not just a human interest story in the Washington Post, because we're talking about a long history that 18th century people remember of religious wars in Europe that drenched the earth in blood. And the great hope for the Americans was that they could sustain peace among themselves. And that meant you couldn't favor one church over another, because throughout Western history, that had been the pattern. And the persecution of people on religious grounds was not confined to the old world, because it happened right here in America, with Quakers being strung up in Congregationalist Massachusetts, with Baptists being jailed and abused in Virginia. And so it was clear that the new nation couldn't have an established church. That's what we have in the First Amendment. But what's surprising and interesting to contemplate is that there continued to be state-supported churches in New England. That is, it took until 1833 to disestablish state-sanctioned, tax-supported churches that would be Congregationalist churches in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. But clearly the writing on the wall was that there would be a wall between church and state to maintain the peace. If people can worship uh, without making war against each other, accept each other, tolerate each other, that's what the wall of separation is really about. It's not to keep religion out of public life, but it's to make sure that religion doesn't destroy public life. I'm not really sure how we would evaluate the founders' success on all this, Peter, because the 19th century was pretty filled with religious chaos. Mm-hmm. If you think about the wars against the Mormons, for example, uh, all the way from New York to Utah constantly being harassed, or you think about the huge conflicts between Protestants and Catholics over the schools of the cities of the Northeast. Anywhere mm-hmm. you looked, it seemed that people were saying, what would religious freedom mean in this country? Does it mean we can create new religions? Does it mean that we can sustain generations-old belief in a new context? I don't know, Brian. It strikes me that the 19th century didn't hand the 20th century a very clear set of marching orders. No, you never do, Ed. But <laughs> Sorry about that. In many ways, it just gets more complicated. In the 20th century, you get the rise of people who are either not religious or 
who are atheists. And this is played out in the Scopes Monkey Trial, a battle over teaching evolution in the schools of Tennessee. And this is broached in all kinds of public issues after World War II, so that by the time you get to the 1960s, the Supreme Court weighs in in a case called Engel v. Vitale, 1962. They argue prayer in the school is not allowed. And I don't think the court is meaning to say people shouldn't be religious. They're simply saying that there is a new set of interests that in many ways I think America has not seen before. The interest of those who have no religion or who are atheists. And when they operate in a public space, they too need to be protected. And I might add, this is a Supreme Court that's quite interested in protecting all kinds of rights for individuals. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening, Brian, is that rights have become sacred. Yes. That's what we're trying to worship. It's a little harder than the conventional forms of worship, and, and conventional religious people might find it deeply unsatisfactory. Peter, that's so well put, because if you think about it, you might say that religiosity was all pervasive. Mm -hmm. back in your period, and you might say that it's actually the sense that we all come with a bundle of rights that need to be protected by the state that is all pervasive by the 1960s and 1970s. Earlier, we heard from Washington Post reporter Caitlin Gibson. 